Coming up on this episode, we're taking a trip back in time to 2019. What could we possibly mean? Find out next. Welcome to episode 433 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of queer romance fiction. I'm Jeff, and with me as always is my co-host, my husband, and my time-traveling companion, it's Will. Hello, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad you're here and that you could join us for the last of our Super Summer bonus episodes. As we roll into this last month of summer, there's so much to look forward to in August. Heartstopper Season 2, just around the corner, starts later this week, Thursday, August 3rd. I can't wait. I've been loving all the promo I've been seeing around Season 2. I suspect I might just be parked in front of the TV all of Thursday night. Maybe just to binge the whole thing. Who can say? If you want a little sneak peek and you missed it maybe before or want to revisit it, we were so happy to have Alice Oseman on the show back in episode 420, which aired back in May. We were talking about the U.S. release of Solitaire. But of course, we had to talk about Heartstopper, and we do talk a little bit about season two in that episode. And finally, Friday, August 11th, just a little over two weeks, Red, White, and Royal Blue finally hits Amazon Prime Video after so much anticipation as the movie filmed late last year. We've been seeing all kinds of promo, all kinds of trailers coming out. Can't wait for that. And it's actually Red, White, and Royal Blue that is the subject of our trip into the past. Author Casey McQuiston joined us back in 2019, just days before the book hit stores, and we decided to celebrate the movie by revisiting that interview. Casey told us about their inspiration for the book, which was rooted in the idea that everyone deserved a big, shiny, trophy-filled, fun rom-com. Even in this interview, we talked about the film, which had been optioned by Amazon right before the book came out. We talked about what it meant that it was going to be a movie, and we even got their thoughts on casting. So here we go into the Big Gay Fiction archives and our chat with Casey. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. So... Before we got to this segment, I I spent a ton of time just going over Red, White, and Royal Blue as being like one of the best things I've read this year and like one of my top books, like maybe in the ever category because it's just everything I needed in a romance with the the prince trope and essentially royalty in the U.S. with the first son. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Alex and Henry are so awesome. Tell us what your inspiration was behind this book. Yeah. So I first started, actually, it's weird. A couple of days ago, I was like going through my time hop, which was you, you know, what you tweeted like two, three, four years ago. And I realized that like a few days ago, which is April 13th, was the day that I tweeted like, hey, I just had this idea for a book. And it was like, took me back to that moment of like the exact like lightning strike moment when I, I knew what I wanted to write. And this is like a question we'll get into later, but it was like one of many attempts at a book I had started and none of them had really like taken hold of me like this one did. So it was early 2016, I was obsessively following the presidential election, which, you know, we all were at the time with a lot of optimism. And and at the same time, I was reading two books. I was reading The Royal We, which is by Heather Morgan and Jeff Cox, And it's about, it's basically like a, almost a novelization of Will and Kate with like a bunch of like different things changed about it. So I was reading that and I was also reading a super dry Carl Bernstein, Hillary Clinton biography, which 
was like a fun little juxtaposition. And I had this idea in my head of like, I want to do like, I've seen so many subversions of Price Charming trope, but I feel like as a queer person, I've never seen one that seems the most obvious to me, which is, you know, like, what if like he wasn't the perfect, like going to produce a million heirs friends, you know? And then on the other side, I was like, I like, I loved like chasing liberty when I was growing up and like my date with president's daughter. And I was like, really into the idea of a, a rom-com starring this like rebellious first kid. And I couldn't decide which one I wanted to do first. And I was like, wait a minute. If I put them both in the same story, I don't have to pick. <laughs> so honestly, it was me being indecisive <laughs> that led to that decision. And like on a, a wider scale, like a bigger scope, I just like really was looking for the perfect like fun escapist tropey rom-com that was like so undeniably fun that like the fact that it was also queer wouldn't keep it out of the mainstream you know because a big thing that I want to do as an author and as a queer person is like push those stories into the mainstream and be like hey you know like 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 everybody is kind of like what they say in love I mean like everybody deserves to have a great love story you know and so Everybody deserves to have like a big, shiny, tropey, fun rom-com, you know? So yeah, that was kind of where it came from for me. And there is so much rom-commy goodness like floating in the book. Yeah, I think you like pulled a little bit from everything. Yeah, yeah. Without giving spoilers, because there could be some, depending on what you pick for this, is is there like mm-hmm. one of the rom-com moments that just sticks out for you as like, one of your favorites among all of them? Um, I mean, like, wow, that's a good question. I have pulled so many tropes from so many of my different favorite rom-coms, but there has, like, this one thing that I love in every rom-com, which is, like, the gratuitous karaoke moment, which is actually, if you ever watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, is, like, a song on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. So it's, like, like 27 Dresses does it. And, like, 10 Things I Hate About You does it, where it's, like, somebody gets up and sings a song in front of a bunch of people for no reason. And it's, like, no, this doesn't happen in real life. But it's super fun. And so, like, writing the whole karaoke scene, which I don't think is a spoiler, that was, like, so much fun for me because I was, like, you know, I was a musical theater kid in high school. You know, we all were. <laughs> and so that was just like, I got to be so indulgent with that. And it was such a blast. I loved it. And uh, I think you picked a great one right there because you're right. <laughs> there is that moment that says a lot about people, the song that they pick. It does. It is like character shorthand for sure. Yeah. Like when like B gets up and sings Call Me by Blondie in the book, I'm like, this is what she's about. You know? <laughs> yeah. There have been so many accolades on this book before it even got published. What's resonating so much with all these pre-readers? God, you know, I mean, just to start off, I've been like completely blown away by the response to it. Like when I wrote this book, I was like, this is so niche. It's like a political, queer political rom-com with royal elements. And also we talk about like gerrymandering. And it and it's just like I was like this is so niche like no one's gonna care no one's gonna publish it I was like I'm gonna try and query this for like a month and, and like I'm just gonna self pub you know and the fact that people have engaged with it so much and that it has gotten like I mean I think three star reviews now which is just like blowing my mind completely like so beyond grateful for those it's just been so like staggering and incredible but I don't know I think that right now the world is really depressing like. 
we live in a world right now that is like at times literally on fire, you know, and it is so important to have like these like little like oases or like moments of respite and like little escapist things. Because like when I first started writing this book, I was so like neck deep in the news cycle and I really couldn't finish it until I pulled out of it because I realized like that wasn't what it needed to be. Like it didn't need to be mired in all of the negativity and all of the darkness of what's going on in the world. It needed to be this like spark of hope, you know, and that would kind of feel like like I think about when Obama won re-election in 2012 and like I was with my friends. I was in college at the time. We like went out on the balcony and like popped a bottle of like $60 French champagne and like how I think about like how I felt in that moment. And I was like, I want this book to feel like that moment, you know? And I think that a lot of people have been missing that feeling. I think that we have so few things, like, especially when we look at political sphere right now, to be excited about and to be hopeful about. And I think that we're all just like nostalgic almost for when we had hope. And I think that like what this book does is it lives in the space of like being here and now and still having hope, you know? And I think that's really resonating with people. And then I also think that people are just like excited to see we're seeing it with like Helen Wong and like Jasmine Guillory who are writing romances that are integrating like, you know, neurodiverse characters and just like racially diverse characters. I think a lot of people are tired of seeing, you know, the same like two straight white cisgender, like neurotypical people falling in love, you know? And so I think that people are hungry for something that's different in rom-com and that that can show that like different types of people can have that same big huge escapist magical love story so mm -hmm. that's kind of where i think it comes from you noted that you started writing this in 2016 essentially before the election happened mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you think you would have written the same book had hillary won that was a great question and the book i had begun to write before the election went the way that it did was a different book there were like so many threads that like I ended up dropping. I at one point had this before anything about like Russia had come out. I like at one point had like there's like a Russian double agent involved in the campaign. And I was like, this is too unrealistic. No one's going to buy this. I'm cutting this, <laughs> you know. And now I'm like, God. God. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it definitely I think it would have been more like lampooning like the Democratic Party, not that I have anything against the Democratic Party as someone who like is registered as a Democrat, but but it would have been more of like weep style, like, yeah. you know, like we know that we're all on the same side here. So like we're going to send each other up kind of thing. And it instead is more of like it's still very tongue in cheek and it's still very like has that that weep side to it. But it needed to have more of like it needs to be less cynical, basically. You know, because I don't think that we can really afford a lot of cynicism right now beyond like, you know, what, you know, roasting the president on Twitter is cynical, I guess. But, but, but yeah, I think that there are certain things that happen in the plot that, you know, never probably would have been explored if, if the results of the election had gone differently. Because I don't think I would have felt as much of an urgency to put those into the story, you know. So, yeah, I definitely would have been different. It definitely would have been a lot different. But the president was always the same. It was always like the, like President Claremont was the same character from the moment I came up with the idea for the book. She's just like she's like Tammy Taylor from Friday Night Lights meets Wendy Davis, the politician from Texas, 
meets like a tiny bit of Selena Meyer from Beep and probably like some of like every strong female in my life, you mm-hmm. know? But yeah, long story short, yes, it would have been different. One of the things that I like about it so much, and you touched on this a little bit, is that it's not two white guys getting together mm-hmm. because Alex is Mexican-American. And certainly given how things have played out under the current administration, having that element in the White House as first son, it yeah. says a lot. And Alex comments on this, you know, periodically as he's kind of going through things and how that yeah. aspect of his heritage plays into things. Did you have that set early on or did that kind of manifest as we saw how immigrants were being treated post-election and even during the election cycle for that matter? Sure, sure. Well, the minute it kind of was like the plot itself that informed what Alex would be because like I said, the first character I came up with was the president and everything kind of formed around her. And I'm from Louisiana and I have this huge chip on my shoulder about Democrats and liberal people and progressive people in red states because like I was one for so long. I live in like a purple state now. But, but you know, I feel like they're so often written off and discredited and like, I can't tell you, I can like count on one hand the number of like actual like presidential candidates who came and campaigned in my hometown, which is the capital of Louisiana, you know, and, you know, people just don't see anything worth investing in. So I wanted to do a Southern Democrat. I didn't think that a Louisiana Democrat was that realistic. So I did a Texas Democrat. And I, for the minute I knew she was from Texas, I was like, well, it would make sense for her to have like married a Mexican man or like a, you know, like a first or second generation Mexican man. And it just kind of went from there where I was like, you know, I really do like that idea of that. Like there's, I know I spent the most time in Texas. I know so many people from Texas. I know so many like Tejanos and like, you know, people, like it just made sense to me. And then, you know, the more that the rhetoric kind of got really vitriolic about about Mexican immigrants around that election. I was like, yeah, fuck you. Actually, I am going to put some Mexican people in the White House. <laughs> yeah, that's what's going to happen. And yeah, and there were, I did as much as I could with it. Like, obviously I'm white and I did a ton of research. I talked to a ton of like Mexican friends of mine and like Mex- especially like Tejano, like, like first or second generation people. And, and then what I'm really excited about with the movie is that we have the opportunity to bring in more people on the creative side who are Latino, who can offer more of that voice that can go farther than I could go with it, you know, and that can explore more things with it. So yeah, I, it just felt really natural to me. Like he's from Texas, like, of course, like he could be half Mexican, you know, Mm -hmm. that's just like so typical there. So yeah, it was, it was a very natural progression of the character for me. There is a ton of history in this book. Mm-hmm. Henry goes into a lot of history of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I loved is in the emails that Alex and Henry are trading, they end up in quote a lot of literature or other letters of historical people. How much of that was in your head and how much was I need to go off and do a ton of research? Okay. So, like, for me, like, a lot of, like, when I was talking about, like, like, well, there's parts where, like, after Alex starts figuring stuff out, he starts, like, doing all this independent research of, like, let me, like, remediate myself on, like, like, queer American history and, like, you know, reconnect with it, which I think is something that a lot of, like, queer people in their 20s do. 
like when, especially like for me, like when I was like 20, 25 and I started to like figure myself out, I was like, wow, I need to know like the first thing about like my own community, you know? And so I, and so I went back and like really like read a lot and like educated myself. And so a lot of the American history, like American queer history was stuff I was already familiar with because that's, you know, something that I felt was my responsibility to learn in the past. But yeah, I definitely didn't know a lot about queer British history, like at all. And so that was a lot of reading for me, a lot of, you know, like finding like history threads on Twitter and then like, okay, I'm going to go look up all these stories individually and like find out like what, like like, what's the real truth because, you know, like things get twisted online. Um, But yeah, I, the letters were kind of started with, and this is like, gonna like date when I started writing this, but I was like really coming off the Hamilton high, you know? which I think we all were in early 2016. It was just like, this was like, oh man, like I've been like mainlining like Alexander Hamilton history for like six months, you know? And, and you know, I was really interested. Like I loved like all of Hamilton's love letters with Eliza, but like there was like also his letters with Florence that were really fascinating to me. And I had started looking into that. And that was how I found this book called My Dear Boy by Richter Norton. And that was like, I found that because I was like researching like the Hamilton Lawrence letters. And and that was where I found a lot of the letters that are featured in the emails. And then I also was like looking into like Virginia Woolf and like Eleanor Roosevelt and all of those figures from history who also have a lot of archived letters that are very like hmm, interesting. <laughs> and yeah, it was like honestly, it was like almost it was I had a blast with it because it was just like a queer history like Easter egg hunt. And I, you know, I I intentionally did that in the book because I pictured this book. I picture it being something that like a lot of people at different points in their journey with queerness would read. And I would want like, like, let's say it's like, you know, like some like 19 year old who's like just figuring things out and like they don't really know anything about queer history. I'm like, well, here's like the name of something that you should go look up. Like here's Paris and Burning, like go watch it, you know, kind of thing. And so it was, it's really like a bunch of sneaky history lessons. <laughs> I'm a nerd. <laughs> and I was like, you should know this too. But yeah, I had a blast doing that. And then just like research in general was just like so much fun. Like I spent so much time pouring through the Royal Collection archives online, just like for throwaway jokes and stuff like that. It was just, I'm, I was a journalist for six years before I like quit to do this full time. And so, yeah, I'm a huge nerd and I love like, hit like historical context for everything because that's just like what I've been wired to do for so long. So yeah, that's kind of where it all came, comes from for me. And, and my musical theater geek self loves that Hamilton had a play in that. Cause I kind of felt oh. as I was reading some of it's like, this seems very Hamilton in some way no, I, that they're using this. I like so battled with myself over like whether Hamilton was a thing that existed in this universe. And like, if I should mention it in the book and I was like, I'm not gonna, because it's like still such, it's still so fresh that I feel like it's going to date the book a lot. But, but like, it's definitely like, there's this like undercurrent of like, oh, like we're like doing like colonial rap battles under the text, you know? <laughs> That's one of the things I like about this so much is that it is current revisionist history. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause I mean, most of it, and, and this doesn't get to us well, or most of it is leading into the 2020. Mm-hmm. election with Claremont being president in the here and now and having succeeded yeah. from Obama. Yeah. Yeah. It's current revisionist history. It's very interesting how that plays itself <laughs> out. Yeah. Uh, now, I think we mentioned that this is this is your first book that, yeah. that's out there in the world. 
What got you into writing romance and specifically MM romance? I mean, I have always consumed like all types of media. And like, this is going to be, this is like my one sacrilegious answer that I give in interviews, which is I'm really more into movies and TV than I am into books. And that is like the most media that I consume. It's not what I write. It's not, I'm not a screenwriter. I'm not good at that type of writing, but it is where I pull most of my influences from. But what I engaged with about all of those things with all these relationships in them, like I watched Lost and I was like, I don't care about Dharma or the clues or like what this island actually means to the polar bears. Like I care about like that everybody can end up together that I want to end up together in the end, you know? And it was, it was always like that with everything I watched. Like I'd watch Buffy and it was like always about that for me. It was like, this is cool. Mythology is cool, whatever. But like Spike, you know, <laughs> uh, it really, you know, like that was just what grabbed me and so I knew that was what I was always going to want to write and I tried to write other genres every other book I tried to start writing was like young adult magical realism or young adult fantasy which is like clearly not my genre and <laughs> I tried like a bunch of different false starts in those in those genres and it didn't pan out for me and then and this was like I said like the first time I had an idea that completely grabbed me and I think like like I said earlier like I, I think I gravitate to writing queer fiction for the same reason that straight people gravitate to writing straight fiction, which is that I'm a queer person. And I, my experience with what I know, I didn't really come into this book with an idea of like what the gender should be more than like what the story would be. And it's formed around that because I like I didn't think that this story would take on all of the same Shit qualities if it was like two women you know i thought that it would be a little different tone like i felt like if it was like two women there would be like a porn parody within like 15 minutes of it coming out you know and so it's just like it's there's just different ways that like like lesbian couples and, and gay men couples are perceived by the world i felt and i i felt that for this story it made more sense with two men and i also wanted to do that like prince charming trope subversion and so it just kind of told me what it wanted to be, you know? And, but my next book is, it's about two women and it's a completely different story. Like it's completely different. And so, yeah, I really, honestly, it's just, it's just me trying to make queer rom-coms a mainstream thing more than anything else. More power to you. And so far, it looks like you're doing a great job with that. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> now, this question may not have a good answer based on what you just told us about your your kind of tv and movie thing but are there authors who influence you well yeah i mean like they're definitely authors that influence me i love the oscar wilde growing up which is like you know i was like 15 like at like my sister's i remember like being at our sister's college graduation with like a highlighter and sticky tabs going through the importance of being earnest like treating it the paperback and and that so like yeah i did like my term paper in high school and picture dory gray and i was like this is strength behavior but uh <laughs> but yeah oscar wilde was a huge influence on me i read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of memoirs actually because i love the voice of them and i think that's what like helps me to have a good like narrative voice so i love like carrie fisher's writings I love, like, Nora Ephron's memoirs are all incredible. Mary Carr. Let's see what else. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. <laughs> like, what else do I read? Jane Austen, honestly. <laughs> like, the classics of romance, you know. And then, like, more recently, like, my favorite author right now is Taylor Jenkins Reid. Like, Seven Husbands, Bevelyn Hugo is, like, my favorite book I've read in the past couple years and definitely has, like, earned a spot on, like, my all-time faves shelves. And so that's 
Definitely. And I loved how she does a lot of, she, like like me, does a lot of what we call in journalism alternate story formats. So like like epistolary style things that are threaded into the book, which is something that obviously I really love too. And then, yeah, that's, I mean, like, I read a lot, like I said, I read a lot of nonfiction, so like Rebecca Traster and like Roxanne Gay, like, yeah, I mean, like those are, those are all my faves. But then like, yeah, I pull from a lot of, a lot of TV and movies, like, the biggest influences on this were like Veep, Parks and Rec. There's like this web series called The Gay and Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo that I love. And it's like so like millennial absurdity that it really kind of like, like there's like a shout out to it in the book because they play the song Loco and Acapulco by The Four Tops in that show. And I, I put that in the book. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I'm kind of all over the place. I have a lot of like influences and, and a lot of things that kind of like all feed into what mm-hmm. comes out of my brain. So let's talk movie. You hinted at it a little bit ago. Amazon and Greg Berlanti picked this up before, you know, again, before it's even published out to the world. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What was your reaction when you first heard that that was a done deal? Well, I mean, it was like, it was like so many stages of reaction because like what people don't see behind the scenes is that like the process is, is crazy. Like it starts with like, you know, I have a Hollywood agent. She sends out people and then like one producer expresses interest and then more producers can if they want to. And then it turns into like you're on the phone with like, you know, such and such from whatever like huge production company. And it's like, uh, I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk to those and you pick your producer and that's why I picked Berlanti. Um, and I I was just like really excited to, to, with, to even have the chance to work with them. Because I've loved so much of their work, like not even just looking at like Love Simon, like going back to like Political Animals, which is like like a six episode series that's on Netflix. It's got it's, honestly, I would say one of my touchdowns too, because it's got like a, a like Sigourney Weaver is the president in that, which is just like amazing. And they've got like Sebastian Stan as like one of the president's kids, and he's like very like tortured and like recovering from addiction, and he's gay and he's. Sebastian Stan, so he's crying, you know, <laughs> and like very beautiful. And uh, but yeah, so I just like I knew that he had the range for it, you know. And I also knew that based on Love Simon, that he had that like that production company had the chops to get a like unapologetically queer rom com into the mainstream, you know. But also, it was like for on a personal level, I just remember going to see Love Simon in the theater, and that was like probably a week after I signed my book deal. And I like showed up with like an entire eight inch Jimmy John sub in my purse because I like I knew I was going to cry and I like to eat my feelings. <laughs> so so it was like literally me like alone. I had to like drive like, 15 minutes out of my city. because I was living in Louisiana at the time to find a theater. I was playing it. And it was like me alone in the theater with my sandwich, just like weeping to Jennifer Garner, you know. And I just remember getting in my car and thinking like I my book could make people feel half as seen as I just felt, you know, by watching that movie, then I will be so, so happy. And so to have the chance to, to do some, to do, it's like kind of pay forward what that feeling was for me to like the next round of people, especially queer people, like meant so much to me. And then, yeah, Amazon, they just like care so much about the project. They're so passionate about it. They like, they want it to, you know, really they're actually like really invested in diversifying what is in the market and 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 taking some risks and doing things like this like that project like this 
And it's just like so incredibly like mind blowing. And it really doesn't feel real yet to have people want to invest that kind of like those kinds of resources in a story that I wrote. This is like came out of my brain. It's just more than anything. I'm just so excited about what it could represent, what it could mean to people. I think about like, and not to at all compare the histories of these communities, but I think about like Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians and like what those movies meant to have this big cinematic event mm-hmm. geared around a demographic that wasn't usually like catered to by the mainstream, you know, and what it meant for those people and, and, you know, what it represented for the future of storytelling for different groups. And I like the idea of like being able to make, you know, any kind of similar impact with movie is incredible. And I really hope that we can do that. And I really hope that it can be the beginning of a lot more queer rom-coms, you know? So then it's amazing. I'm like so, so humbled and amazed and really excited to see what comes next with it. As you were writing, I think all authors tend to cast their books to some degree. Mm -hmm. Mm Do you, do you have in mind, and knowing this is totally separate from anything that Amazon and Berlanti might do, sure, do you sure. have in mind who Alex and, and Henry are, at least in your head as you were writing, if you had to assign well, them an like, actor? Well, like, it's so hard because, and this is like kind of an indictment of, you know, the state of Hollywood, you know, and that is slowly being a change, but there really aren't a lot of like young Latino actors out there to choose from, you know? And so it was like, they're really wasn't a definitive Alex in my head because I had looked and looked and it was like so hard to find, you know, someone that that fit. And that's what's exciting to me about the movie is I think that we will get a chance to kind of give a star making role to, you know, like some young unknown Latino actor, which would be amazing. And I would love to do that. And it was and and Henry is just very elusive. Like there's like five million charming white British men but (laughs) but he's just like in my head he's just like so specific looking and like I have not yet found anyone that matched him but the the parts that were like easiest for me to like assign an actor to were like like I I always pictured like Daniel Day-Lewis as Richards like with like but like Silver Foxy you know and then like Ellen Claremont in my head from day one has been Connie Britton and then like I mean like Raphael Luna, like in my head, is like Oscar Isaac for sure, you know? Oh, um, yeah. I like yeah. that. Right? Like, there are some characters that, like, I came up with the character first and then, like, tried to figure out what they looked like. And there are other characters where, it was, like, with Raphael Luna, I was like, I want a character who looks like Oscar Isaac. What's he going to be? <laughs> you know? And, and that was kind of how that came to be. But yeah, I'm really excited. Like, casting is going to be so much fun. And I'm very excited about it. And I'm really, really excited about about just like getting to see you know what we can do for some like i think there's gonna be a lot of like unknowns in it and like the leap roles and that's gonna be amazing because they're gonna be able to just really step into and embody those characters without it being like distracting like oh that's like so and so you know like i just like i look at them and all i see is like the character they played in game of thrones or whatever right yeah so i think that'll be you know a fun thing but yeah (laughs) that's kind of (laughs) that's kind of it for that do we get to see more of Alex and Henry in the future, do you think? I think that that, I would not rule that out. That's all I can really say about that. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think that that would be amazing. I would love to do that. What's the best way for folks to keep up with you online so they could 
track your your progress with the with what's up with Alex and Henry and also the new book and everything yeah, else. Yeah, Twitter for sure. I've kind of been taking a step back lately because since we announced that movie, my notifications have been like busted, you know? But but yeah, I'll definitely be back on more, like especially during tour. I, I tweet out like playlists and like a lot of like little like trivial information, like like their like birth charts and things like that on there. And then also Instagram, that one is more like, where like, you know, I'm here for this tour date, you know, kind of thing. So yeah, those are like my big two. And it's like, it's like Casey underscore McQuiston on Twitter and then Casey period McQuiston on Instagram. Very cool. Well, we will put the links to all of that in the show notes. <laughs> thank uh, you so much. I appreciate it. I'm so, so grateful. And it's been so much fun. So thank you so much for having me on. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, Check out the show notes page for this episode at BigGateVictionPodcast.com. We've got links to absolutely everything that we've talked about in this episode. It was amazing talking to Casey as Red, White, and Royal Blue arrived, and it was fun revisiting the conversation now, four years later. Something that stuck out to me was that they said that they hoped to make queer rom-coms a mainstream thing, and if the book itself and finally getting this movie adaptation doesn't help prove that, I don't know what does. And you know how much I absolutely love this book. I actually talked about it back in episode 410, which was our 2022 wrap-up episode, because I had reread it when the collector's edition came out with the bonus material, which has delightful vignettes that cover six years beyond the end of the original story. Mm, it was so good. So having recently reread the book, I am super excited for this movie. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Since we're now finished with our Super Summer bonus episodes, we're going to be returning to our regular schedule, which means we'll be back here on Monday, August 14th, with author Timothy Janofsky. Now, Will's loved Timothy's books, Never Been Kissed, and You're a Mean One, Matthew Prince. And we're going to be talking to Timothy about his latest, New Adult, which is a book I completely fell in love with. It's got some big and 13 going on 30 vibes going on, mixed with what I consider a little bit of somewhere in time. Now, if you want to know how all of those things actually combined, you'll just have to come back in a couple weeks to find out. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you'll join us again soon for more discussions about the kinds of stories we all love, the big gay fiction kind. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Original theme music by Daryl Banner.